This is an emergency. People are already suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate and environmental emergency. But it will get worse. And still, this emergency is being completely ignored. The scale and scope of the threat we face call for a global systems level solution based on radically transforming our current fossil fuel based economy to one that is genuinely renewable and sustainable. If we do not act today, we will risk leaving an ever more desperate inheritance for our children tomorrow. If you say ESG, then immediately people will think ethical, they'll think sustainable, they'll think impact, they'll think trade-off for returns. That isn't true. That might come from ethical, but that's not ESG. People are really, really concerned about what's happening to the planet. And a good number of people, actually notably financial advisors, are very often more focused on the social side, which is great also, but they interconnect. Everyone's talking ESG, taking it really seriously. But on the other hand, I think we're still so far from having an investment industry that truly takes responsibility for the impact of investment decisions on people and planet. ESG, it's a term we hear every day now. Whether it's investors challenging a company's pay structure or CEOs talking up their green credentials, environmental, social and governance concerns are a major part of the corporate world, and politicians are even making their name criticising the approach. But it wasn't always this way. When ESG investing began, it was a niche offering. Advisors struggled to find any funds for their clients, let alone top performing ones. So how did ESG go from the sidelines to mainstream? I'm Alicia Hagopian. And I'm Nicola Blackburn. We're reporters at Citywide New Model Advisor. And in this three-part podcast series, we will explore the history of ESG investing, where it is now, and look to its future in a world where regulation is changing fast. Let's get right into it and start at the very beginning when a few small groups started to plant the seeds of sustainable investing. In 1988, Jupiter Asset Management launched the Jupiter Ecology Fund, which is widely considered to be one of the very first sustainability-focused funds in the UK. In the next decade, there were a few similar options popping up, but it's safe to say that investing with a purpose, whether that's sustainable, ethical or ESG, wasn't in the mainstream yet. Chris Wellsford is the Managing Director of Ayers Punchard Investment Management in the Isle of Wight. When he's not busy being an advisor, he's off working late nights at the local Coast Guard. When Chris started his firm back in 1995, the market for ESG funds could be counted on one hand. I go right back to, to, uh, to 1995 when um, there wasn't an awful lot about really. There was a few companies that had a green fund or a, I remember the Lincoln National Green Fund, I think. And there was probably something from some of the life insurance companies. And we had stewardship from Friends Provident um, with Ted Scott, I think. Yeah, Ted Scott was the guy. And and then um, there were, there was NPI's Global Care Fund, National Provident Institution. Um, that's now Henderson 
well, J- Janus Henderson's uh, Global Sustainable Equity Fund. Um, stewardship ended up at BMO. Uh, it's it's it, it. Those are the old funds, and that's kind of the very very start of it all. Those global care funds that Chris mentioned actually inspired Julia Dreblow to get into socially conscious investing in the early 90s. They're now run by Janice Henderson, but were launched by National Provident Institution. At the time, these funds were unique for having an environmental and community-oriented approach. But it wasn't until the financial crash in 2008, after working at Friends Provident, that Julia started her own business, SRI Services, which became a source of expert knowledge on sustainable investment. I started SRI Services. The process really started around about the time of the financial crisis because although I thought about setting up my own business before then, I absolutely loved the company I worked for previously. But um, when I was made redundant in 2008, I had been doing two lots of work effectively. I'd been working for UCSIF as a director, so UK Sustainable Investment Finance, so I was doing my day job plus all this access stuff kind of often in the evenings and weekends and goodness knows what. Um, but because of all that work and, and because the work I'd done, I knew that advisors were really stuck. They didn't have a source of information to go to to find out genuinely what these funds actually do. When Julian Parrott made the choice to start investing his clients' money ethically in the early 2000s, people were still very sceptical about how this career change could actually make any money. When I made this move, I'd worked for a national IFA. Uh, and when I and when I made this move, um, I mean, people literally thought I was bonkers. I mean, they couldn't they couldn't understand that I would be able to to, to earn a living. Uh, and when I would speak to people at sort of industry events, I mean, and, and, and I'd explain that that's what we did, and they said, "What you only do ethical?" And go, yeah, and they're kind of like, "How on earth do you make a living?" But Julian didn't let the skepticism get to him, and he started up his own advice business, Ethical Futures, in two thousand and five, where he still works today. Slightly before. The creation foundation of of ethical futures. I kind of had a my millennium moment, I like to call it, because literally I started working in this area um, specifically, you know, wholly and exclusively on uh, the. I think it was the fourth of January two thousand. Um, so uh, uh, essentially, I had been um, pretty fed. I've been working as a mainstream advisor uh, and was interested in started working with clients who, who had values-based propositions and I, and, and I was interested in that. That kind of started to make it all make sense to me because I was a bit disenchanted with what I felt was just like a sales industry, a sales job. Um, and uh, it's kind of, so it, it gave me personal meaning, if you like, um, to, you know, to, to, to create the business. Around that same time, in 2005, JP Morgan analyst Desiree Fixler was having her own awakening to the power of impact investing when a friend sent her a copy of a book on microfinance. She sent me a book called Banker to the Poor by Dr. Muhammad Yunus. Um, and that really changed my world. I never read a book like this. I never heard of socially responsible investing. I never, I never heard of microfinance. Desiree later went on to become a key whistleblower against corporate greenwashing. But we'll get into that in a later episode. Back to the early 2000s, when Julian Parrott was starting out in ethical investing. There were only a few IFAs in the space, but they were still able to have an influence on fund managers at the time. It was much more fun in those days. Um, there was a small band of people that did what we did and all around the country. The, um, the Ethical Investment Association, which was a group of um, 
of IFAs, which is now kind of subsumed into UK SIF um, and is less active. Uh, but the Ethical Investment Association was a was a group of like-minded IFAs, most pretty much all small, small, small one or two man bands. Uh, and we met three or four times a year. Um, you know, we 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 had one-on-one relationships with the investment managers. It was very easy, you know, for a for a for a for a, for a you know one advisor, two advisor firm to to be able to walk into uh, to an investment manager's office and and, and have a face to face meeting uh, with them. It's interesting that Julian points out the access that IFAs had to fund managers during that period. The divestment versus engagement debate focuses on whether investors can actually influence the behaviour of companies that they invest in around social and environmental concerns. That shareholder influence is exactly why Catherine Howarth from ShareAction started out in this industry. I actually used to be a community activist and uh, 20-some years ago, I was involved in the start of the living wage campaign in the UK. And so I bought five shares in HSBC and I like stumbled across this incredible power that you have if you own shares. And uh, actually Barclays became the first major company in the UK to make the commitment on a living wage. And as soon as they had, HSBC was like compelled to follow on. So I figured out, oh my goodness, you can use the competition that exists between major companies to achieve some really positive things for people and planet. Um, So I kind of stumbled into uh, this whole world. Engagement or stewardship is often used by fund managers to explain why investments like oil and gas companies appear in a sustainable fund. But this only works if you are actively holding that company to account as a shareholder. And unfortunately, Catherine believes that this has become less and less common. If anything... I think companies have become less democratically accountable because the rise of institutional investors, like big asset managers, they don't bother to go to AGMs. So, but but the people that do go are like the individual shareholders and they're a smaller and smaller part of the shareholder base. And so there's a real risk that these incredibly important democratic functions sort of almost wither on the vine because they're not used by the shareholders that have the power, the really significant voting power. How else has the sustainable investing space changed in the last 20 odd years? And when did things really start to take off? Both Chris and Julian say that the mid 2010s was when they saw a real shift. I hear consistently all of these big players who've who've forever been socially responsible investors, or they've forever been impact investors. Now, impact investing only came into prominence very recently. And so it's incredible how many of them got like a 20 year track record. I'm not going to name any names because that's just not going to happen. But but it's it's um, isn't it absolutely extraordinary just how long this thing has been going on for when in fact it hasn't. And sustainable investing um, really didn't take a shape, a proper shape, I think, until probably between 2009 and 2014. Of, of anything that you could really get your ha- head around, apart from exclusion-based investing. Here's Julian Parrott. I don't really think the pivot, the, the pivot point really came until about 2015, 2016, somewhere around about there, around about um, just a groundswell of awareness. Um, you know, that sort of Greta thematic, that, that blue planet, you know, bless him, David Attenborough and, and, and such, like the plastic bottles. 
Um, everybody getting very exercised about a plastic straw um, as if, you know, changing the cutlery in the canteen really made, you know, the, the whole the whole thing be better but but that's where it started to 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 get really busy and and where you started to see fund launches and and people start to talk about it and you know around 2014 the uk started to see a boom in the number of funds which were marketed as esg sustainable or ethical but it wasn't only a values judgment performance mattered too that's why 2019 was such an important year for esg funds in that year, 66% of ESG funds outperformed the returns of their non-ESG peers, according to Morningstar's data. Investors really t- started to take notice. The first big difference that I noticed in this market over the last, say, 13, 15 years is um, scale and, and the profile has just shot up. Um, not always in a good way, but certainly in terms of this being on people's agenda, there's this growing number of people who've come through the market who I guess are a little bit younger than me who've said, this is obviously a really important business issue. I'm going to focus more on this. And some present themselves as specialists and others don't. But also you've got all the big boys, all the big networks, all the big nationals now have all got a view on this. And most of them have got someone who specialises and would expect their their, their advisors to, to be at least moderately able to cope with this. Around that same time, a client interest in sustainable investing really started to increase. High-profile BBC documentaries on the environment, combined with a growing movement about tackling climate change, made advisors realise they should learn more about the ins and outs of ESG. There was always more interest than there was supply. Um, uh, and, um, and, you know, in early days, we did very well out of patronised clients or clients who had been patronised. Sorry, by one of my peer group, so apologies, but it, it certainly happened, you know. Uh, so, you know, the, they're there, dear, you don't want that, you want one of these, um, you know, or or do you realise the risk issue that you're taking there and such like. Um, so, you know, clients certainly, you know, there was definitely that that interest and that, that, was, that, that, that was that was definitely a driver. But I I think you're right. The money, the, the money speaks. You know, the, you know, it's it's when there was an opportunity, and in a way, I think you know the the 2018-19 splurge of rebranding, which which led to the current FCA sort of review of uh, and, and, and labeling review, the SDR work, um, you know, was reactive to that. Most of our clients are very heavily on board with what we do, particularly our biggest clients who, for whatever reasons, they, they all have different reasons for, for wanting to be part of this. Um, but but one sort of collective reason, I think, is is that they all have children or grandchildren um, or they are young enough to feel that they really are going to, going to be impacted by uh, climate change. Nowadays, there is an expectation from consumers that investment professionals should have some understanding and stance on ESG whether they're advisors, fund managers, or even pension schemes. Catherine and Chris agree that clients are expecting more from their advisors when it comes to ESG. I think that the advisory community, the advisor community is really cottoning on to that. And they're also getting better at um, asking slightly more nuanced questions about their um, clients to really get um, to the bottom of what it is that people are looking for. Do people want to just invest in already best-in-class sustainability companies 
Or are they actually really interested in being part of the movement that takes companies on a journey of positive change? I just think we're going to get into a position where we're a lot more in touch with our portfolios. A lot of advisors have gone a long time just putting in place portfolios that they don't know anything about. They, they know the basic characteristics that this is a growth portfolio. It's a value portfolio. It's, it's very heavily income laden. It's got a lot of bonds. It's got a lot of equities. They don't know anything about the underlying companies. They trust the fund managers to be getting it right. And the fund managers, nine times out of 10, will be getting it right. But not when customers and clients start to ask more searching questions about the behavior of those companies and start to become offended when they find out that they've got a company in there that's taken the water supply from an entire area and, um, and, and it's banged, slap bang in the middle of their supposedly sustainable portfolio. So now we're in 2023 and there are five times more ESG funds than there were in 2018. With nearly 7,500 funds available to investors globally, it has become much harder to keep track of what companies underlie those investments and how to measure impact. The various ways that fund managers interpret ESG has only become more and more fragmented as the number of funds grow. There are currently $2.8 trillion invested in ESG funds around the world. So how do regulators make sure that those funds actually do what they say on the tin? Perhaps now more than ever, the ESG investing industry needs some clarity over boundaries, benchmarks and labelling. And that's exactly what we'll discuss in next week's episode on regulation, featuring a snapshot of today's sustainable investment landscape and a conversation with the FCA on its sustainability disclosure requirements.